here's just a learning opportunity. And my thing is, is having an understanding that there's no one that achieves any level of success without facing disappointment. So I like to say we disappoint our way to success. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Dr. Joan Rosenberg, to our show today. Dr. Rosenberg is an expert psychologist, best-selling author, and founder of Emotional Mastery and Emotional Mastery Training. In our conversation together, we unpack how our inability to move through and handle unpleasant feelings such as sadness, shame, embarrassment, frustration is a massive component of what blocks people from success. Once we learn how to deal with our overwhelming or uncomfortable feelings, we begin to build the self-confidence, emotional strength, and resilience we need to lead a highly successful and fulfilling life. Dr. Rosenberg is a professor of graduate psychology at Pepperdine University and is a two-times TEDx speaker with her videos garnering over millions of views. She's also been seen on CNN's American Morning, The O Network, and PBS. Her latest book, 90 Seconds to a Life You Love, How to Master Your Difficult Feelings to Cultivate Lasting Confidence, Resilience, and Authenticity was released last year. Welcome to the show, Dr. Rosenberg. It's an honor to have you with us. It's a treat for me, Yasmin, and I've been looking forward to this, so I'm all, I'm all yours. I'm excited. There's so much to dig into in this hour of conversation. And today's going to be a little bit different. You know, this podcast is all about helping and empowering women to live their best life. And so much of what you talk about is if you're able to really deal with eight unpleasant feelings, which we'll go into, you can really live an authentic and a very successful and fulfilling life. So I think anyone listening, if you're able to really master this conversation that we're going to have with Joan, it's really the gatekeeper to living a true life to yourself. So I'm excited to jump into it. Let's go. <laughs> yes. Starting from the beginning, you know, you talk about these eight unpleasant feelings. I'd love to just start there and get your perspective on how you came across those feelings and what they are for us to really understand. You know, as I, as I was in my professional life, what I found was that as difficult as our thinking can be, and our thinking can really trip us up, uh, my experience was that people had a much harder time dealing with unpleasant feelings. And, and that became a big question for me in terms of trying to understand that as I moved through my professional life. And, you know, that, that started uh, 20, 30 years ago. So it's, I've put in, uh, put in some of the miles and, and what I realized is that there were, there were about six, seven, eight feelings that consistently came up over and over and over again. And what I also found is that if people didn't feel like they could handle these feelings, then they didn't feel capable in life. They actually didn't feel capable of facing life. So no matter what circumstances or events or conditions or situations they faced, it was like, no, 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 can't handle it. So for me, the whole, the whole idea of being able to really master being able to handle these feelings was, was central to my work. And the, the feelings themselves are sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability, embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. So those eight unpleasant feelings that you mentioned, what I think is really also interesting is you say that a lot of people associate that those feelings are bad or not good for me. I'd love for you to talk about that because I think so much of the way we speak to ourselves and interpret things is how it feels in our body and how it feels in our life. So I'd love for you to also talk about why you call it unpleasant feelings. Right. Well, if you step back and start to look at what neuroscience talks about, these feelings are actually not bad, nor are they negative. So I never, I never use those words for them. And my encouragement is that you don't either. And, and the reason I don't want you to do that is because these feelings are actually designed for protective purposes. So that, you know, if we're angry about something or we're sad about something or we're disappointed about something, then the, the notion is that it's a, it's a pushback. And we should stay away from that very thing. 
So one thing that I love about the way you talk about these eight unpleasant feelings is the way you label them. So many of us will consider shame, anger, and everything you mentioned as bad feelings that we don't want to feel. So can you share about why it's so important to label them correctly and why you call them unpleasant feelings? Right. So for me, words are super important and how we use those words is equally as important. And think of a word as having a vibration to it. And, and so that if, if we're going to use a particular word, it's going to elicit or evoke a certain experience within us. And, and the idea for me is that, that the feelings, these unpleasant feelings are neither bad nor are they negative. In fact, if you look at the neuroscience research or the, the neuroscience discussions, the, these feelings really exist for our protection. So, you know, if we're angry about something or we're disappointed about something or we're sad about something, the message is stay away, don't go near, right? So, so for me, there is nothing negative nor bad about unpleasant feelings. So my thing is call them difficult feelings, call them unpleasant, call them uncomfortable, call them unsettling. And what I like to say is call them unwhatever, right? But just don't call them bad or negative. I think that's really powerful. And you know, one thing that you also talk about is really the importance of having awareness with these feelings. And I think a lot of us, including myself, you'll avoid the situation. So for example, if I feel sadness or disappointed, I'll have judgment on myself and get hard on myself about why am I even feeling this? And you talk about that being a mechanism of avoidance. So I'd love to get your perspective on why do we avoid these feelings? What do you see with your patients? And why is it so important to feel the emotion? The reason it's so important for us to actually experience what it is that we experience without judgment is, is because it's the truest experience we have. And in my mind, feelings are our sense of aliveness in the world, right? So, so without an experience of feelings, and I'm talking about the whole range of feelings from, from pleasant to unpleasant, that, that we actually, if we try to cut out the unpleasant, we're cutting out half of our life experience or potentially half of our life experience. And it doesn't allow us to be authentic. And the uh, ability to actually experience these feelings it is our sense of aliveness. No feelings, we feel dead or empty inside, right? So why is it so important? One, because the sense of aliveness. Two, it, um, it's the thing that actually allows us to connect, I think, deeply with ourselves and ultimately deeply with another person. I always like to say when we connect through thoughts with another person, it's like Elmer's glue. And when we connect with, to, with feeling to feeling with another person, it's like super glue. So, so that we miss the depth of connection if we're also trying to shut down feelings. And again, pleasant or unpleasant. And but yet what I see is that so many of us want to avoid unpleasant feelings. And, and again, that's going to shut down our authenticity. It's going to shut down our aliveness. So the, the, and your question about, you know, well, do we kind of use this language and well, why am I feeling this? And I don't want to feel it. And now we're into judgment about it. Or we actually turn that into harsh self-criticism. And the judgment and the harsh self-criticism to me are both avoidance strategies. It's the way we distract from those unpleasant feelings. We try to take control of them through our mind, through what we're thinking, so that we can avoid what it is that we're actually feeling or experiencing. And, and that for me actually takes it to the reset that I talk about to help people actually stay present to the feeling so that they actually can make use of it. So I can head down that direction if you'd like. Yeah, just really quickly. It's so interesting because a lot of people, I think in terms of avoidance, it could e either show up in workaholism, right? Booking your schedule. So you're so busy, whether it's social affairs, seeing friends and family. So I think this is really important because a lot of people might not realize they're avoiding the situation. And there's so many of us doing this in our day to day. So I think it's really important to acknowledge what's happening. And I'd love to now jump into, you know, your practical tips of Rosenberg Reset that right. you recommend with your patients of how do we really unpack and deal with these emotions as they come? Right. So, so this, this for me, I, I, and this for me was an answer to kind of two questions simultaneously, Yasmin. Um, one had to do because I, I started so young as a not so confident child um, that, 
that it was and didn't feel like I fit in, didn't feel like I belonged, was bullied, you know, have those experiences. So one piece of it for me was wanting to develop confidence. And the, and the second, as I noted, as I got into my professional life, it was actually ask, asking the question about, well, what about these unpleasant feelings? How come people don't want to experience them? It turns out that the un, being able to actually handle these feelings, um, for me, is really the essence. Uh, it's the foundational piece of confidence. So, so, so jumping into the reset then, what I developed over time was kind of a formula for people to lean into these unpleasant feelings. And, and the formula, if you will, is uh, one choice, eight feelings, 90 seconds. So the one choice is awareness as opposed to avoidance. And so what do I mean by awareness? Well, it's about being as aware of and in touch with as much of your moment to moment experience as possible. And the avoidance is everything else. And, and I think in the book, I outlined probably 35 different ways we can avoid. And, and it, it gets pretty nuanced. So the obvious ones are things like alcohol or other substances or social media or screens, or it could be shopping, or it could be for men, more, a little bit more than women, it's sex or pornography, or it could be uh, somebody having feelings about having feelings. It could be you judging your feelings. It could be harsh self-criticism. It could be anxiety. It could, so there's so many different ways that we actually distract from our experience that's all the just I would want somebody, including the workaholism, I would want somebody to be aware that that those are distracted distraction techniques, if you will. So the, the key, the one choice that I want you to come back to is choose into awareness and being in touch and aware. I mean, aware and in touch of with those moment to moment experiences. Then the eight feelings, which I'll hit again. So, so the eight feelings were sadness, shame, helplessness, anger, vulnerability embarrassment, disappointment, and frustration. And then the last part, the 90 seconds, has to do with actually how you tolerate the feeling itself. So, and what am I asking you to tolerate? The eight feelings. And again, why these eight? Because they're the most common everyday spontaneous reactions to things not turning out the way we want or the way we perceive we need. So it's the everydayness of them, actually, that that is why it's these eight feelings. So that again, what, what the neuroscience research started to talk about is that it's like, we're one interconnected whole. We're not a, a brain that just sits atop our body and it's a disconnected thing. We're one interconnected whole. The second is that they started to talk about is that the most of us come to know what we feel emotionally through bodily sensation. So think embarrassment, for instance. So if I'm embarrassed, you may see the redness in my face, but I'll probably feel the heat in my chest and my neck and into my face, right? So the heat is the bodily sensation. Or let's say I'm disappointed. Uh, I might feel the heaviness, kind of a drop-down feeling in my chest. Or anger. I might feel uh, I have a tight jaw or I might grab my fists or uh, I have clients that will express feeling heat in their arms or heat at the back of their neck. So it's, it's gonna be different for each one of us, similar, but different. And, and so the, the key here is then starting to notice what the bodily sensation is that's cueing you to whatever your emotional feeling is. And, and what dawned on me through this is that it wasn't that we didn't wanna feel the whole range of what we felt. It's actually that we didn't wanna feel the physical sensation that helped us know what we were feeling emotionally. And for me, that was like a big aha moment because it's like, oh, okay, if I can help people ride these bodily sensation waves, then they can stay present to the feeling and then they get all the benefits of being authentic and congruent and a sense of aliveness and, and all those different kinds of things. So that, so that then Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor's work came out and she wrote a book called My Stroke of Insight. And in the book, what she says is that if when a feeling fires off, there's a rush of biochemicals into the bloodstream and those biochemicals activate bodily sensations, the same ones I've just been talking about. And, and that they flush out of the bloodstream in roughly an upper limit of about 90 seconds. 
So I was like, oh, okay. If I can get someone to have the awareness that all they have to do is to ride short-lived bodily sensation waves, then I can help them stay present to the feeling in that way. And that's exactly what happened. When they realized it was like 90 seconds, I can do 90 seconds, then, then people were willing to ride the waves. So if I can take this one step further, Please. or I can, let me, if there's a question in there, I want to wait and see, or because there's another step I want to add to this. I'll save my questions for after the last step. Okay, all right. So, so there's a couple things I want to add here, and this is not in the book. So, so it's, it's kind of the way I've thought about it since. And so think of, it's like, so what happens? You have this reaction, right? And, and it's like, all right, okay, I'm aware I'm feeling something. My thing is think, think of your, what you're going to do is you're going to ride a wave like an ocean wave. First of all, that's, think of that kind of an idea. Think of your breath as the, the uh, canoe or the, um, the boat or the surfboard or whatever you want to do. Think of your breath as what you're going to ride the feeling in on. So that, so that the first thing for you to do when you have a reaction, an emotional reaction, is take a deep breath or take a few deep breaths and let yourself stay present to the feeling that you're experiencing in your body by allowing yourself to kind of just breathe into it. Then pause, just like give your, give your mind, if you will, a moment to pause. And if you have a chance, then reflect a little bit. And the reflection would be, huh, well, I wonder what triggered me. Oh, okay, uh, now that I'm aware of it, did this happen before? Wonder if there's a pattern to this. Right. So that depending on the amount of time that you have to reflect, it might be just noticing what triggered it. But if you can take it further, then you can actually learn way more about it. That's really powerful. Just even thinking about how this applies in my own life. There was a certain situation where I got called to speak in front of hundreds of people. I wasn't aware that I was about to get up. Mentally, I'm thinking, okay, I typically speak, I can do it. But to your point, the bodily sensations, I started shaking and quivering. And it was like my mind and my body were not connecting. Mentally, I thought it was okay, but my body was thinking I'm in fight or flight. So it's just helpful because in those moments, it's about pausing and breathing and knowing 90 seconds, right? It, it You'll just feel a little bit better as you go through it. So I think that is so powerful because so many people don't put themselves in certain situations, you know, whether it's launching a company, having an uncomfortable discussion about a raise, switching careers, because they're scared to deal with what that will feel like. And sometimes you don't even know. I surprise myself all the time. So I think just the reset and that program and knowing that you have this tool to use is so helpful. So it's it's definitely a powerful statement that that you shared. Yeah, yeah. So that so breathe. Let it ride the feeling on the breath, pause, and take a moment to notice what, what it was that kind of triggered. And, and, and if you stay really present to it, Yasmin, here's the beauty of it. When you gain insights when you stay present to the feeling. And those insights, and you're, again, whatever other thoughts are there, then make available that feeling or those feelings for making decisions, for expressing yourself. Mm. taking action so it opens it it, it be, then your feelings become another source of information for you and one thing that that reminds me of and i love this you say that in our society a lot of people misuse and overuse the words anxiety and fear i feel anxious i'm fearful can you talk to us more about what you mean by that because i think it's important for us to label our feelings correctly and many of us use anxiety and fear in our everyday lives right so so if we go back to our the earlier part of our discussion around uh, words being super important again one of the reasons i don't want people to use fear and 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 one of the reasons i think it's so mis- misused both are anxiety and fear is that is that if you look at the way psychology defines fear Psychology says fear in general is danger in the moment right now. Okay, so if I'm fearful of going and having a talk with my boss about a raise, then that's I'm probably not in danger, right? And and so and and what I also like to say is if you're well resourced, meaning you have food, 
you have uh, finances, you have family, you have friends, and you have shelter, then you're probably also in general, not in danger. So then stop using the word fear because you're evoking something within your own body by using the word that actually is not true. So let's, let's toss that one. And for me, then the next most logical one to use is anxiety, which actually fits the circumstance because they, it's, again, psychology says the anxiety is kind of diffuse concern or broad concern about uh, something bad happening in the future. It's like, okay, that fits. But if I were to ask 10 people what anxiety meant to them, you know what, roughly eight to 10 times, I would get, I'm sorry, I would get roughly eight to 10 different answers. So it's like, that's way too vague. And so when somebody says I'm anxious, I actually have no idea what that means. Zero. And what I found over and over is that anxiety became an, like an, an umbrella or a cover over the eight unpleasant feelings. That what was really going on is that the, they either felt vulnerable, so this sense I could get hurt, which is more accurate than anxiety, that, that even saying that word allowed them to feel calmer. It, was, it felt more manageable or more controllable, if you will, inside than just this diffuse, anxious experience. So, so say if, and if they're not vulnerable, then they're typically feeling one or more of the other seven feelings. And they're just trying to hide out from those feelings by using the word, I'm anxious. Because then if they have to, then if they let themselves actually really say the word that's going on, like they're really angry about something or they're really disappointed about something, then they have to deal with it. So just saying I'm anxious keeps it diffuse and vague and then I don't have to. So that's why I don't like to use the words fear or anxiety because it, they're, they're too vague. And most of the time they're not, I mean, because of that, they're not accurate. And then you actually don't deal with what's really going on. Exactly. And I know you mentioned an exercise where I believe you had two students where they kept saying they were anxious. And then once they were able to label the feelings of, I believe one of them was like angry and sad, you just right. the calmness and you see that a lot with a lot of your patients. So that's why it's important to have these conversations, because if you keep it high level, which I do all the time and I'm fully aware it's not the right place to be, but right. once you take it a, a level deeper, it gives you that comfort. And I know you've seen that a lot with your patients, right? Yeah, I have. And it's, I mean, it's, it's really funny. I, I'd add a whole nother level to this one too, Yasmin, because um, in that story, so the story is that I was working with, with some graduate students in a group therapy course, and I didn't want to be too provocative too early. So I waited. And, and they, but they kept on talking about how anxious they were. And, and I said, I said, look, I don't really believe in the same way, uh, anxiety, I think the way you do, would you be game to kind of play with the idea? So they were both up for it. And so, and uh, someone listening can actually make use of this as I go through it. So I looked at them and I said, all right, here's, here's the deal. What I want you to do is I want you to pick, pick an, an experience that you would typically describe yourself anxious in, which they did. And I said, but you don't get to use any words that sound like anxiety. So the, so the first word was apprehensive and then the second word was scared. I said, uh, I can't use either one of those. They're too close to anxiety. So I said, what's, I said, what's really going on? So they went back to the, whatever the experience was. And then one says sad, the other one says angry. I said, great. I said, now what I want you to do is to go back to that memory where you, where you were anxious, where you said you were anxious, and I want you to, re you replace it with sadness and the other one replace it with anger. So they did. And, and I said, are you still anxious? And both of them kind of had this half smile on their face. And they went, well, no. And I said, okay, great. And was there another person involved? And they said, yes. And I said, did you happen to talk about the sadness or the anger with the other person? Well, no. And then they had these beaming smiles on their face. And they, what they recognized is that saying that they were anxious kept them from the real feeling underneath and kept them from expressing it, which was even more uncomfortable. So one of the, along with looking at anxiety as a cover over the eight unpleasant feelings, I also look at anxiety as unexperienced and unexpressed feeling. 
And that's and that's what I would have you think about, right? Is is okay when I say I'm anxious, am I really not allowing myself to experience something else, and am I not expressing it? And I'd love to talk about the latter point because I know we a little bit before this conversation we were talking about how, especially with women we should do a better job speaking up for ourselves. So I'd love to get your viewpoint on that because as you mentioned, you know, that feeling of sadness or anger could still live in your body if you're not expressing how you truly feel about a situation. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that, and for me, this is singularly the, my, uh, my most favorite topic is the importance of speaking up. So you, you just uh, hit the gold mine. So the, uh, we do need to speak up and we need to speak up for far more reasons than we think we do. And the, again, I think that we, the more able we are to put words to our experience, the more authentic we become. And the more authentic and the more congruent we are, the more confident we become. But confident, it's not a situation where we're confident that, and then we speak. And it's actually not a situation that we necessarily know ourselves as well as we think we do. And then we speak. It's actually the other way around. We gain confidence as we speak and through speaking. So it's the, the flip around of that. That's the first thing. The second thing is that um, speaking is often our first line of defense as adults. And it's often our first line of defense, uh, or it's our first line of connection. As adults, you know, a child or an infant might go for touch, but as adults, speaking is often the first for both of those. So we need it. We need it for connection and we need it for protection. The, and that the, the idea here is that um, our difficulty speaking up is actually not a speaking problem. And that's kind of confusing. It's like, wait a minute. No, I can't speak up. It's too hard for me to speak up. Yeah, but Difficulty speaking up is not a speaking problem. Difficulty speaking up is a difficulty with unpleasant feeling problem. And it's a whole new way to kind of wrap your heads around it. It's like, okay, so what does that mean? That means that if I speak up, then I have to handle or be willing to handle the discomfort of my own emotional discomfort in order to even initiate a conversation. And to be in the conversation, not only do I have to handle the discomfort of my emotional discomfort, I have to handle the discomfort of your emotional discomfort simultaneously. And in both cases, we're talking about the same eight unpleasant feelings, because that's probably going to be the emotional outcome, if it doesn't turn out well, of the speaking. So that's a partial response. There's more to say, but yeah, and there's so much I want to dig into. So going back to your first point, and I want to get to the, the second aspect you mentioned, but going back to the first point, what I love about what you talk about is confidence is about doing something. And I think a lot of us can sit here and look at other people, whether they're building their empires, getting on stage, you know, living the life we always envision. And we're like looking at them thinking, oh, I wish I was as confident as them, or I'd start that business, or I'd make that leap. What I love, and I'd love for you to talk about this more, is confidence comes from doing it, right? Can you speak a little bit more about that aspect? Yeah, actually, let me layer it um, uh, because I think understanding the layer is going to make the difference. So, so how do I, the first is how do I define confidence? And and for me, confidence is the deep sense. So it's actually literally kind of you can feel it in your body. Uh, it's the deep sense that you can handle the emotional outcome of whatever you face or whatever you pursue. And so that's that's really the, the key. So that it's the handling the emotional outcome, like neon, right? Underlined, bright lights. The confidence is handling the emotional outcome. What's the emotional outcome? The eight unpleasant feelings, right? That's the foundational piece of confidence. If you don't see yourself or experience yourself as handling those eight unpleasant feelings, then you don't feel like you have that foundational layer of confidence. So, so that's, that's the first one. <clears throat> the second one for me is speaking up. So again, as I was saying, <clears throat> most of us have the point of view that we have the confidence and then we do something, except it actually works the other way around. That's the way confidence develops or builds. 
So, so you have to speak in order to develop the confidence, not have the confidence and then speak. And the same is true with taking action or taking risks. It's not that we have the confidence and then we go take the risk. It's that we take the action or we take the risk and then that's how we develop confidence. Now, if it turns out well in both cases, whether it's speaking up and we get what we want or we take the action and we do it decently well or, or great or whatever it is, then we develop one aspect of confidence. And the interesting thing is, is that if it doesn't turn out well or the way we want, whether it's speaking up or whether it's again, taking the action and we fumble or we get disappointed, it doesn't go our way, then being able to handle the emotional outcome, again, those eight unpleasant feelings of it not turning out well, builds a whole different kind of confidence. So that, that as we keep on taking risks to speak and to take action, to speak and to take action, and sometimes it works out well, sometimes it doesn't, then we're also developing that foundational piece of being able to handle over and over the disappointments that we face as we move our way to success. And I know Brian Tracy loves to say, you fail as fast as you can. <clears throat> Failure is just learning opportunity. And my thing is, is having an understanding that there's no one that, that achieves any level of success without facing disappointment. So I like to say we disappoint our way to success. I think that's really powerful. And all of our interviews with these self-made women talk about all the disappointments and all the times that they put themselves out there. And it goes back to your fundamental principle of being comfortable in those eight unpleasant feelings. And why is that so important? Because it really allows you get to your authentic self and live a life that you that is truly fulfilling. And I think everyone listening here today wants to ultimately live that life. And it's right. taking those steps. And I think even starting small, it doesn't have to be a big thing, right? It's whether having an uncomfortable conversation with your children or your spouse, like being okay, sitting in that uncomfort, like you mentioned, right. you're, not, you're not necessarily sure what way it will go. Sometimes it won't go the way you want it. Sometimes it will go the way you want it. And really sitting there and being able to move through that, like your boat analogy through that wave, it only builds that muscle memory for the next time. And then you do bigger and bigger risks. So exactly, I think that's exactly. a really powerful conversation to have. And I, and I would, I would actually echo you there and say, starting small, super important, important, start small, Start with people you love or start with people that love you and, and start to build that emotional muscle and, and then go on to the, the next bigger things you need to face. Absolutely. And on the topic of confidence, one thing that I love that you talk about is, especially also with women, is why we need to do a better job taking in compliments. And when you talked about this, I was guilty as charged with this. So I'd love for you to talk about the importance of compliments and what you mean by accepting it and taking it in. Well, I can, I, I want to bridge that with another piece because I, I think it's, it's really important. And there are some other thoughts, if you'll allow me to come back with the speaking up part two, yeah. but the, let me, let me start with the compliment piece, but I want, I want to kind of pair it with harsh self-criticism because women are stellar at harsh self-criticism. Now what I want, but I want to position it for a second. If we have harsh self-criticism going on and that, that's a, that takes up a big portion of what we're doing and we don't accept compliments, right? There's no place for the good to come in. And I, and I want people to really hear that. Harsh self-criticism, no compliments, no place for the good. So then how do you change yourself? How do you change having a better image of yourself? Or how do you move into that confidence when you've got both of those going? So the compliment piece for me, uh, so I wanna so stop one and start the other, right? So I wanna stop the harsh self-criticism. I wanna make sure that people absorb compliments. So let, let's understand, again, from my perspective, compliments are a reflection of you back to you. In essence, it's like me holding up a mirror and say, look, Yasmin, this is, this is my experience of you, or this is my experience with you, right? It's not, I'm not just reaching up to the sky and pulling it out of the blue, right? So it's, it's not coming unfounded. It's coming through an engaged experience with you. So it's a mirror. But if you dismiss it, then what you're basically dismissing 
is not only my experience of you, you're, you're actually kind of dismissing your experience of you because I'm trying to show you. And then you go, no, not true. Oh, it was nothing. Yeah. Oh, you know, you know, so-and-so does it better. You know, I, I, eh, you know, I was lucky. Yeah. Right. Whatever we say. Yeah. But when you don't absorb it, you never have the opportunity then to what I talk about is to update your self-image. And I think that's what I think compliments allow us to do. They allow us to update our sense of self or our self-image. Because sometimes when we start to allow ourselves to take them in, then we go, oh, there's aspects of myself that I've already developed that I am who I most wanted to be. Or, oh, I have developed in that way, that skill, or even wanting to show up as a kinder, more generous person, whatever it is, that gets reflected back to us. So it's super important for, for women, particularly, to take in compliments and not to see them as any measure of arrogance. Mm. In fact, I will challenge you, for those of you who do not take in compliments, that's the arrogance. Humility is actually telling the truth of who you are. Arrogance is dismissing that. Mm. And it just shows, you know, even if you feel uncomfortable to say thank you, that's just an opportunity for you to work through those eight uncomfortable feelings. Yeah, just vulnerability or embarrassment. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, one thing you mentioned, self-criticism. We all are so self-critical of ourselves, even when we're doing something great or making an impact in the world. What, outside of accepting compliments, are there any tactical items that have helped your patients or even yourself kind of work through just you being self-critical with yourself? Well, there's a difference between something that's constructive and something destructive. And, and I really believe that when we become harshly self-critical, it is almost singularly the most self-destructive thing we can do to ourselves. And what I want people to understand is that they're not equal. So unpleasant feelings, so just so and harsh self-criticism have no there's no equivalence at all. In fact, I, I like to think of uh, what we do to ourselves when we start to use harsh self-criticism. It, it's like it's like tanking an elevator 70 stories, right? Or or if you have uh, the notion of what a Richter scale, an earthquake for an earthquake is, it's the uh, difference in, in one point on the Richter scale is a magnitude of 10. Right. So the difference between three and five, a three point earthquake and a five point earthquake is actually 100 times different. It's 10 times 10. Right. And think of that in relation to harsh self-criticism as well, that it's a it's a magnitude for a 10, a 10 times or whatever times greater. So I look at harsh self-criticism as a distraction from unpleasant feelings. And, and the best example I have for you is an interview I did a couple of years ago where I could hear the, the interviewer and the interviewer could not hear me. I'm watching him fumble, he's pulling cords, he's working on the keyboard. You can imagine what was going on. It's now going on for minutes. And out of his mouth, I hear him say, I'm so embarrassed. And then without missing a beat, he says, I'm such an idiot, I'm so stupid. And that's how quickly it happens for all of us. So the, the key here is understanding that the I'm so stupid, I'm such an idiot, is a thought hijack of unpleasant feelings. So anytime you catch yourself into harsh self-criticism, you are thought hijacking an experience you don't wanna be feeling. I would suggest it's probably back to the eight feelings. And the thing you wanna do is to stop yourself in the moment, catch yourself, be aware. This is that aware of the moment to moment, right? So be aware, go, oops, distraction mode. What was hard for me to think, know, feel, or bear here? And again, it's probably going to be in the feelings experience part or maybe a need part. And, and then back it up, almost like you're reversing your car. Just back it up and go, all right, what happened just before I did that? What was I feeling? And then, and then stay with the feeling. What do you do? You ride the way. So you already have the skill. And the truth is, if you're listening to this podcast, You've already been through countless disappointments and angering experiences in your life. You've already got this. You already know how to do it. 
It's just that you don't want to. So just stay present to it. And when you do, it's going to, I think of this as being emotionally liberating, frankly, mm -hmm. uh, Yasmin. And when we're able to use our voice, then we have access to limitless opportunity. I think that's powerful. And I think in order for you to even use your voice and speak up, like you mentioned throughout the interview, it's really sitting in those feelings. So you have insights, right? I mean, I went through a tough business decision that I had to do, and I had to have a, a very uncomfortable conversation, but it took me some time to really sit with my feelings to even understand how do I even feel? What do I even want to say to kind of close a loop? So I think to your point, having awareness, having the curiosity of why you feel some a certain way just gives you the tools to speak up. And to your point, it's so liberating afterwards. And um, and it's liberating even for the other party involved. At least you guys are on the same page and you right. life feeling good about where you stand. So and I want to be mindful of our time together. But one thing you also mentioned, which I think is interesting and I didn't hear you talk about this in other interviews, but really the difference between men and women and the way we approach statements. Women ask more questions and men are more statement focused. So I'd love to hear your perspective on that because I've never heard that before. I uh, got, got it. The, um, the, a couple of different things here. Men actually really prefer direct communication. Just like, tell me like it is because I, because I need that. I actually need that level of direction and understanding. And oftentimes what I watch with all the couples work that I've done, what I watch is that, that women will get in the habit of asking questions. So even if it's a, what do you want to do for dinner? So let's assume we're all going out to dinner, right? Again, and well, what would you like for dinner? But the woman actually knows what she wants. She'll ask, not say, she'll ask. And then the guy says something different. And now she's upset because he says something different. And now they're into a fight or something because she didn't say what he, she, he didn't say what she was thinking, right? Or something on that order. But it gets way more complex, obviously, when we get to many more sensitive topics. And so my thing is that I want women to say what they really mean. So if you're asking a question and you actually have a statement to make, make the statement. It's far less confusing for men. And, and instead of you being in the vulnerable position by making the statement, you put the guy in the vulnerable position by listening and having to answer the question. And then he gets confused because it's actually not what you really want. So guys actually really wanna please you. They're doers and they wanna do things for the right reason, right? But, but on, so on their end, it's like, just give, give it to me straight, right? So make the statement instead of ask the question. So just notice whether you're the type of woman that, that does that or not. The second is that on the other side, the flip side, men, uh, and this has to do with women providing what they think is feedback to men. Now, again, the feedback, the way I will understand it is that it's well-intentioned, right? I'm telling you this because I have a bigger vision for you. I'm telling you this to you because I see that you could do a little bit better or it would actually help our relationship be better in X, Y, or Z ways. And what ends up happening, I think, and I'm being a little bit funny, and I know, please bear with me and give me a little poetic license here, a little stereotypical, but when the, when the uh, message hits the eardrum, it goes from feedback or information to criticism. So that lots of times what my experience is, is that men will hear what's intended as information the feedback that's intended as information, they'll hear it as criticism. Why? Because they wanna do good. They wanna do the right thing for the right reason. But the hard part here is that then they have the sense that they've done bad. And then doing bad eventually leads to feeling bad. And if it persists over a long period of time, then it's, I am bad. So it's not, so for women with men, it's like, I want you to do a really gentle startup. Right. And, and, you know, John Gottman talks about that too in, in his work and the, and the marriage work he does, but it's, so it's a soft startup. It's like, I love you. I want to tell this to you, please hear it for the way I'm intending it. And then, and then if he's ready for it, to, then to say what you want to say. And I think that's, 
that's really important because like you said, you know, people can go in a complete defense mechanism and not really listen to what you're saying. And this applies even outside of relationships. So it's about having the compassion and just sitting with the person and opening up a conversation and then going into your feedback or what you want to say. And I think that applies to business as well. And, you know, it's so important to speak up because I think a lot of people, and they might not realize at the time, will develop resentment over time, whether that's with their partners, business partners, they're not really sitting with how they feel and bringing it up. It's just a recipe for resentment with some people, I think. Well, yeah, I, I, I would agree with you. But the way, again, I, what I want to do is play with words if I can, Yasmin, because the resentment um, I, I, it, for me, it's the idea of whether a conflict is out in the open between us, where we can both wrestle with it. Or, and, and I did this, and uh, I talk about it in the book too, where I actually throw a Kleenex on the floor and I say, that's our conflict. And, and, then, I, and then it's like, well, let's, let's pretend like we're both talking about it, we can see it. And so we, it's out in the open, we can talk about it. And then, and then I say, well, let's, um, let's assume that I didn't address it with you. So this becomes the resentful piece. So I didn't address it with you. So I pick up the Kleenex and now I stick the Kleenex in my shirt. Well, it's not like the conflict went away. Now the con- it's where the conflict resides. So now the conflict is in me, but it's not being expressed. So what happens when that happens? Then I can get resentful. But what's the resentfulness? One, it may be my unexpressed feeling. And then two, it may be actually grief. I think of resentfulness as disguised grief. So I'm upset that it's not going my way, or I'm disappointed about something. And rather than dealing with the disappointment, I I turn it toxic and I make it into resentment. And, you know, Dr. Rosenberg, I feel like we can have a whole other conversation about relationships and this can go on for a few hours. But one last thing I'd love to close with is from your perspective, how do you, I'd love to talk about perfectionism because I think that's something, you know, men and women really deal with. Where do you think that comes from? Is it our fear of failure, feeling stuck? Like, I'd love to get your perspective on just perfectionism as a whole. Well, again, uh, perfection, well, for me, so, so visually, if, if you're listening, just imagine that you have your, your, one of your arms extended all the way in front of you so that you can see your palm. So it's kind of you know, out like that. Uh, now, now imagine that you're getting up and walking around, then perfection is actually in your palm. But now you're going to get up and walk around with your arm extended. Will you ever reach perfection? No, you will never reach perfection, right? So, so the, a couple of things around perfection. One is most of us, uh, many people will say they want to achieve it, but they have no definition for what the it is. So then people are pursuing an ambiguous, amorphous goal that they don't even, they wouldn't even be able to define it once they got there. So that's my first challenge with perfectionism. So it's the the, the not knowing. The second is that we won't ever get there. The third is that I really see all this wrapped up, you know, uh, angst, if you will, around perfectionism as mostly not wanting to deal again with the eight unpleasant feelings. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with the disappointment if it doesn't turn out well. I don't want to face that I couldn't do it in quotes right the first time or maybe even the second time. So I just won't try because I don't want to deal with the embarrassment or the disappointment that comes. So really perfectionism for me is just another distraction technique from dealing with the unpleasant feelings. And it's like, put yourself out there, do the best you can, let it be messy, know that it's messy for all of us as we get better and better at what we're doing. Absolutely. And we've talked about this already, but if you want to do something great and build a a successful life for yourself, the one thing we hear is, to your point, just dealing with those unpleasant feelings. And I think really having the belief that you can create and bring something magnificent to the world. So it just goes back to the way you speak to yourself about what is possible. So I think that's a really powerful point. And I'm excited that our listeners got to learn more about you. We'll definitely share your book in our show notes. And you have two magnificent TED Talks as well that they can listen to. So thank you, Dr. Rosenberg. No, my pleasure. Thank, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm duly honored. Thank you. It's a lot of fun. Thank you.
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even better, sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on our new episodes or join our private community, go to BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. And if you have any feedback or just want to say hi, reach out to me on Instagram at Yasmin K. Nori, or feel free to email me at Yasmin at BehindHerEmpire.com. Before we wrap up, I want to take a moment to acknowledge this incredible community of women listening. There are so many of you that are working incredibly hard to build your own empire, and I want to celebrate your success. So occasionally, at the end of our episodes, I'll be highlighting an inspiring story from one of our community members. Let's listen in to this week's featured entrepreneur. My name is Alexis Gamliel, and I am the proud founder of Gamliel Law, a professional corporation. My business, Gamliel Law, is what it sounds like. It is a law firm, and through Gamliel Law, I represent individuals in personal injury, wrongful death, and employment matters. Um, I have experience in taking cases all the way from intake to trial, and now I'm super proud to be able to do that through my own law firm, Gamliel Law. The motivation that I had to start my business was going through some pretty difficult life experiences. Um, I am a new mother, but what happened before that is I had a very tragic loss in my family, and it wasn't until I had the passing of a dear loved one and the birth of new life to inspire me to take life by the horns and really push myself to the next level and take ownership over my my law practice. So that's when I started Gamliel Law in the middle of a pandemic with a new baby and a newfound sense of maturity and confidence. My biggest challenge in launching Gamliel Law was really learning step by step um, how to do each and every little detail of the legal practice in terms of all of the things that previously I had the luxury of a huge team to handle many different aspects of filing legal documents and doing other tasks. And now I do every single item and every task from A to Z myself. So it's my goal to be able to hire staff in the future, and I'm making my way during the first year to do everything on my own, so that way I know how to properly train um, people how to do that in the future. My words of encouragement and advice for others trying to start a business are to trust yourself and really lean into all of the previous life experience that you have with this new energy and excitement of being on your own. It's really rewarding and exciting. And although it's extremely scary at times, um, you know, it's, it's very gratifying. Listeners can find me uh, on a variety of uh, forums. Um, you're always welcome to reach me by email at alexis at gamliellaw.com. You can also explore my website, gamliellaw.com. Find me on LinkedIn. Um, at Alexis Gamliel or on Instagram. My personal handle is Alexis R. Gamliel and my business handle is Gamliel Law. That's G-A-M-L-I-E-L-L-A-W. I look forward to interacting with you and thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.